Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For thousands of years, philosophers and writers have debated the nature of courage. What is it? Are some people born more courageous than others? And can you learn to be courageous? My guest today set out to answer those questions by looking at courage through a scientific lens. His name is Robert Biswas Diener. He's a psychologist and the author of The Courage Quotient, How Science Can Make You Braver. Today on the show, Robert explains how he defined courage for the purpose of his research and how he went about studying and quantifying this quality. He then explains how courage manifests itself differently in cultures of dignity, cultures of honor, and cultures of face. We then discuss the genetics of courage and how people can learn to be more courageous. Robert then gives brass tax advice on what you can do to manage fear and increase your propensity to action, including carrying lucky charms, thinking about yourself less, and avoiding self-handicapping. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash courage quotient. Robert Biswas-Diener, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, you wrote a book, you're a psychologist, you wrote a book about courage. It's called The Courage Quotient, where you tried to articulate what courage is and how to measure courage and how to increase courage. I'm curious, what led you down this path to research courage? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think it was thrust on me, actually. Uh, I come from a tradition of studying happiness. That's my primary area of expertise. I, I am attracted to positive topics. But, but along the way, I kept studying happiness in sort of unusual places, in, in brothels in India, in slum areas, and sometimes dangerous places like favelas in, in Brazil. And people kept telling me how courageous I was, which wasn't necessarily how I thought of myself. I definitely knew I was prone to take risks, but I certainly didn't think of myself as a, a hero. But because it came up as, as a conversation piece more and more, I decided that I would start looking into what was published out there, what, what research had been done. And the, the deeper I went, the more fascinating it became. And what's interesting about courage is that it's this virtue that you know, it's been written about by poets, philosophers, theologians even, and I'm sure psychologists have gotten in on this in the past few hundred years. And everyone has like different conceptions of it, right? Like when they, when you ask someone like, what does, what does courage mean? I'm sure you get a hundred different answers, but you know, but they're vaguely trying to hit on the same idea in your research. What did you find are the most common ideas of what courage is? 
Yeah, uh, again, good question. The, I think among lay people, just everyday folks, one of the most common misconceptions about courage is that courage is a, a physical act of bravery. The stereotype is sort of the, the soldier in combat heroically saving his, and it's usually a male, his comrade in arms in a midst of a firefight, something like that. And I think that that really is a myopic view of, of courage, that people attend very narrowly to these these physical and often stereotypically masculine ideas of, of bravery. I think that, that we can expand from there and, and think of, of bravery as something far more wide-reaching. It's somehow a, a mental state. It's an attitude. Traditionally, the philosophers, as you said, said it's a, a part of the spirit, if you will. And I believe that, that it's really about acting in the face of fear. So it's not the absence of fear, but it's, as one person I interviewed very articulately put, it's the ability to step through fear. So psychologists really define courage as going ahead and choosing to act or sometimes just acting automatically despite the presence of fear and doing so when, you, when you're uncertain of the outcome of your action. That is, there has to be a, a risk involved. Now, philosophers would say that, that there should also be a, a moral dimension, because if you think about it, someone who is a street criminal and mugs people is probably afraid, probably acting despite their sense of fear, and, and certainly the outcome is unknown. They're taking a risk. So we would add to that this, this morally inspired dimension. So it, it's acting in a way that is positive, that would help people or is for the community good or personal good. And despite the fact that you're afraid. Okay. So three, so there's three things going on there, I guess. So the first thing, uh, there's, there's a moral component to courage. We want it to be for a good cause, but it's also the ability to control fear, but also act despite that fear that you might still have. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think the best way is just that idea of, of stepping through fear. The most courageous people, they get afraid. They, they aren't people that are immune to fear. They're just very, very good about acting even though they're afraid and not being paralyzed by that fear. So as we mentioned earlier, courage is a sort of virtue, you know, universal virtue, is a universal ideal that humans across the world experience but how do how do different cultures shade the meaning of courage or what it means to be courageous oh, interesting there there are certainly different ways we can look at cultures and most people when they think of culture they think of the most obvious aspects of culture like language or dress food or religion things like that as a psychologist i tend to think of of cultures in categories in terms of how people identify how they view the individual and the individual's relationship to the group. So you can look, for example, cultures of dignity, and these these are Westerners, by and large, folks that are Americans, Canadians, for example. And we think that every individual is the unit of measurement of our culture, that each person has dignity or should have dignity. And you can you can contrast that with, for example, many Middle Eastern cultures that we would call cultures of honor. 
and certainly it's not only the Middle East, other places as well, but honor cultures are those where people are very concerned about how they come across to others, they they feel more on stage, and their their personal and family reputation is very, very important to them. So understanding culture in, in this type of way really gives us some insight into some of the mechanisms that bring courage about. You or I, if we're from a, a dignity culture, might be more likely to to speak up on behalf of an underdog because something has violated our culture of dignity. We really value everyone being treated with dignity, so we can't stand a bully. So we're going to be more courageous in that particular instance. Whereas uh, someone from a culture of honor, if you say something bad about about a family member, you know, talk talk about someone's mother or sister in a in a derogatory way, they are not going to let that slide because you have just insulted their very sense of honor, one of the things that their culture prizes most highly. So it's it's sort of what in the culture will activate our willingness to act. And you besides uh, dignity and honor, you also men- mentioned cultures of face, which are, you know, you see in Asian countries. What is the difference between like face cultures and honor cultures or is there one they're they're similar a culture of face culture and and listeners may be familiar with the idea of saving face for example and and these are the cultures in the the pacific rim like taiwan japan china and so forth korea and people are interested in avoiding personal embarrassment that they they think they are personally on stage they have a more hierarchical society they want to impress others and so that's a little bit different than culture of honor which is about reputation and family reputation the culture of face can be a little bit more individual if i'm going to um, stand up in front of my work group and give a presentation I need to do a good job, not only so that I don't embarrass my colleagues, but also that I don't embarrass myself. Okay, so what you're saying again is culture is what triggers, will determine what triggers courageous or brave acts. It's one of one of many causes, but absolutely. And you, you begin the book, which I think was interesting, with your sort of a personal experience, right, in Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about that and like what sort of culture of courage were you seeing there? Yeah, so I had gone to Africa originally to study happiness among tribe, tribal people. I was interested in working with people who had been traditionally overlooked by research psychologists. And I was focusing in particular on the Maasai in Kenya. And many people are familiar with the Maasai. They're sort of the poster children for tribal Africa. Uh, the warriors, especially, they have those, these long braids in their hair that are painted with red ochre paint and they're swaddled in these bright red cloths. And they're known for jumping high and having spears and so forth. And so I went and I stayed there many months and I was conducting interviews with them principally uh, about happiness, about the quality of their life, what makes them happy, how their relationships are, what their dreams and hopes are, those types of things. And one of the things I noticed very quickly about them is that they really prized courage as a virtue, which makes loads of sense if you live among wild animals. You know, there are lions, for example, roving wild. And, and in fact, one of the people I interviewed, in fact, was attacked by a lion one time as he was walking by and all he had to defend himself was a knife. So you imagine yourself, you know, that's your morning commute that 
you might be attacked by a wild animal like a lion. And you think, well, they must do something to instill bravery. They must tell their young children that bravery is one of the best possible virtues our society can have. Um, and by and large, they consider themselves pretty brave. And in fact, I think they they are pretty brave. And I think that their particular brand of bravery is largely that kind of physical brand of bravery that most people default to. And it's not so much some of the other types of bravery that we might think of, like an entrepreneur opening a new business, which of course is a risky proposition and requires a little bit of courage. So let's get into sort of the specifics of courage, what allows us to be more, what, what allows us to be courageous and what we can do to be more courageous. So we talked about earlier, some of the factors of courage is one is the ability to manage fear when you experience fear. And then the other one is to act even though you're afraid. Do these two factors work exclusively from each other or is it, are they sort of intertwined with one another? It, this this really, I think, in some ways is sort of the, the heart of courage. So if you do think of courage as being two separable processes, one is the ability to manage your fear, and the other is the willingness to act. That is essentially your courage quotient. You need your willingness to act to be greater than your fear. If your fear is greater, you're going to be paralyzed and not do anything. If your willingness to grip to act as even incrementally greater, then you will, as the name suggests, be willing to act. And most people would assume that this operates like a, a seesaw. When one goes up, the other goes down. If I can sort of tamp down my fear, then my willingness to act will go up and vice versa. And in some ways, that's true, but they don't operate exactly like a seesaw. They're a little more independent of each other, the two sides. So for example, someone who's afraid of flying may boost their willingness to act by, let's say, praying and, and trying to fortify their, their attitude to say, hey, you know, I, I, I can do this without tamping down their fear whatsoever. That is, their fear is still going to remain sky high, but they are going to be willing to act despite that. Similarly, you could really, really tamp down your fear, and it might only incrementally increase your willingness to act, but you've pushed your fear down so far. So it's sort of the the relation of those two things, willingness to act and fear, um, that, that give us two separate avenues for trying to boost our own courage. And this is where the debate with philosophers, at least, gets into like what is considered a courageous act, because some philosophers would say, well, if you feel no fear, right, maybe you have some sort of thing where you just, you, you don't feel fear at all, like, are you really being courageous? right? If you don't experience fear. That's right. And and I actually, I think to some degree would, would agree with that notion. That is really, if you don't feel any fear, you don't have any sense that there's a real risk. You don't have any skin in the game. You're really not putting up too much by way of virtuous behavior. Now, I've, I've heard many people sort of, you know, wave their hand at me and say, but wait, wait, what about someone that just out of instinct bolts into the burning building to save the family and they didn't even have time to feel afraid? Well, the truth is they're still experiencing the physiological symptoms of fear. They, they have the accelerated heart rate, the, the blood pumping, the adrenaline, all of that. Whether or not they're consciously sort of aware of it in the moment, 
that's a, a I think a more nuanced and, and subtle issue. But in general, we think that that courage has to happen in the presence of fear. And this raises an interesting question. So in psychology, there's this idea of temperaments that you know you're born with, and you know it makes up about like. 50 to, you know, I, I can't remember the percentage, but it's sort of like, you know, if you're going to, if you're conscientious as a kid, you're going to be conscientious as an adult. Are, are some people born more courageous than others out of temperament? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question to dig into. And, and we know, look, there's individual differences between people. Some folks are artistic, some are smart, some are detail oriented. And, and some of that isn't just genetic, but it's also comes through practice and through their upbringing and, and some combination of all of those things. And exactly the same thing is true of courage. And that happens in part because of people's emotionality. So some form, some folks are, are born just with their, their emotion dial set really intensely. They feel emotion strongly. When fear hits, it hits intensely. They love intensely. They get really angry when they get angry. For some of those people, fear might be overwhelming to them. They might be more likely to, to be paralyzed by fear. On the other hand, some of those people more likely might be motivated by anger when they when they feel the outrage at an injustice or seeing someone being bullied, they might be the one to to step forward. So people who have a, a better sort of natural ability to control their emotional states or, or have more even keeled emotional states may in some ways be better able to to control fear and therefore be more courageous. And there are also people who are sort of just dialed a little bit more towards optimism, a little bit more towards risk-taking. And that's that other element, the, the willingness to act element of bravery. And for those people, they, they are more likely to take risks. You, you find this sometimes in serial entrepreneurs who open business after business despite the prospect of failure. You find it with some types of people that, that enjoy things like rock climbing or, or other dangerous hobbies. But with that said, you know, you might have a temperament that allows, you know, gives you propensity to be more courageous. You argue in the book that courage can be learned. Like you agree with Aristotle, for example, that courage is a virtue that can be learned. Yeah, absolutely. And courage can be learned, I think, uh, in a variety of ways. One of the things that a number of scholars do is that they distinguish between what's known as personal courage and general courage. General courage is exactly what you would think. It would be courageous if, if that act were performed by anyone. It would be courageous if anyone ran out into a hail of gunfire, saved someone and pulled them back. That's We just get that. Anyone would be afraid in that situation. We would think anyone was a hero in that situation. But personal courage is only courageous if you do it. So again, returning to the example of, of the person who's afraid to fly, if they get on a plane, that is an act of personal courage because they've overcome a personal fear. But we wouldn't necessarily consider that a, a generally courageous thing to do because people do it without a second thought all the time. And I think that it's in personal courage that people are more likely to make gains. That if you're 
afraid of dogs, afraid of flying, afraid of public speaking, afraid of failure, afraid of intimacy. Those are where you can make some incremental gains. And you don't need to worry necessarily about having to rush into fires or rush into gunfights to, to save strangers, although that's certainly a nice thing to do. So let's talk about these two processes of courage. So first one is your ability to control fear. I think it's an interesting one because you probably, you know, as a psychologist, you probably, there's some people who are just anxious, like they're just fearful about everything, but there's some people who are just, they're, they're not anxious, but they do have that, they experience that fear of public speaking and they, they can't get over that. So what are some ways that people can do? What are some things that people can do to increase their ability to control their fear? So the good news is people already have a pretty good intuitive grasp of some of the things they can do. So people engage in a whole range of mental techniques naturally. And these range from praying, right? You, you, whether you're religious or, or very religious or not at all religious, the, the process of trying to tap into to some force, whatever you think that is, that will help fortify you and give you strength is a very common strategy. Um, people, and to use the example you just raised of public speaking, a lot of that is fear of the unknown, fear of being evaluated. What, what will it be like tomorrow when I have to give this huge presentation? And if you can remove some of that unknown, for example, go to the auditorium, see what it's like to stand on stage. You can picture now a little bit of what the audience will look like, what the seats in front of you look like, how they're laid out. And, and as some of that unknown shrinks, you gain a little bit of, of confidence. And because fear is also physiological, we can do a number of things to relax our muscle tension. So deep breathing exercises, tensing and loosening our muscles to feel relaxed, various mindfulness activities. Sometimes people, for example, have a glass of wine or beer, you know, the mild consumption of alcohol can relax you, a bubble bath can relax you. Turns out there, there's just a whole host of things that can help cut fear. It won't necessarily get rid of it, but, but it can cut it down quite a bit. The one section I thought was really interesting is this idea of egocentrism that you know, increases. When you think about yourself a lot, your fear goes up. So how does like not thinking about yourself reduce your fear? Yeah. So it, ego, this idea of ego kind of popularized by Freud is the idea that we're our own top fans. We just like ourselves, we're heavily invested in our own success, our own outcomes. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we're arrogant or, or conceited. It just means we really, really care about us because we have to live here inside our own bodies and with these identities. But because of that, the downside risk is that we're very protective of ourselves, of our reputations, of how others evaluate us. And sometimes this means that people are only willing to take baby steps because they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to be unfavorably evaluated. They don't want to be ostracized from a group. And the more self-conscious a person is, oftentimes the more paralyzed they are. They just simply don't want to act at all, let alone take a risky action. So if you can shift some of that focus, shift some of that focus um, the, to the idea that you are just a cog in a machine, 
Um, and many people might not like that idea, but at work, for example, you're just one member of a team and really you're focusing on the team outfit, uh, output, not your own output or focus on others that, that really this risky action isn't about you. It's in the service of other people. So really just shifting away from that kind of like I'm staring in a mirror and there I am to I'm really looking out and focusing on the impact and the, the obligation and responsibility to others. That can get people to to sort of tamp down the the breaks the ego put on. Yeah, I know when we we did a series of articles a couple of years ago about shyness or social anxiety, and you know one of the things that kept on popping up over and over again is that the sort of the thing that drives that shyness or social anxiety is that you're just thinking about constantly how am I looking? Am I looking like an idiot? Am I looking? And then like that just creates this vicious cycle. And the way you get out of that, you just try to think about the other person and make them feel comfortable and put the focus on them. And then that can help out a lot. Absolutely. And, and one thing I would like to, to add to follow up on that, sometimes you'll probably notice from your own life, the more heavily you invest in a goal, kind of the bigger the deal it is, you know, like, wow, I really care about this. Sometimes that can lead to more and more anxiety. It can be more and more paralyzing. And what some of my colleagues have discovered is when people are heavily invested in, in pursuing a piece of success, some people end up being really happy and some people end up being really anxious. And the difference between those two groups is what they're focusing on. And the anxious group is focusing on, oh no, if I fail, all this terrible stuff is going to happen. But the happy group is focusing on progress. Hey, I've made a little tiny piece of progress. Even though, you know, there might be loads more to do, I'm still making progress. I'm still putting one foot in front of another. And if you can start focusing on that and making sure that your attention's locked there, you're more likely to continue on and, and taking risks and not be paralyzed. So continuing on on that idea of reducing fear by eliminating the unknown, right? So if you're public speaking, you gave the example of go to the place before your your speech, walk around, get familiar. But like the other idea of just eliminating the unknown is just facing the fear and then experiencing you know what you fear because then you, you realize it's not as bad as you thought it was going to be. Absolutely. One of the people I interviewed for the book said that they give themselves a, a weekly challenge to be uncomfortable. And that could be any number of things, going to a new restaurant, trying a new type of food, going to a, a church service for a, a religion that might be related to your religion, but is not exactly your religion or or caters to a different, um, I don't know, a different demographic than, than yours. Um, and, and then all sorts of little things too, just like strike up a conversation with a stranger or be willing to fail today. Uh, and they would just do about 50 of these small experiments uh, a year, kind of by way of inoculating themselves. And I, when I asked like, oh, now do you not feel fear? Uh, I remember her saying, oh, no, I feel tons of fear. It's just not so toxic. That's great. I love that idea. So let's move on to that second process, which is increasing your willingness to act. So let's say you've got, you've been able to tamp down your fear using some sort of tactic. What do you do to increase your willingness to actually you know, take action on that risk that you, you're confronting? So there are a number of, of things you can do here. The one that tickles me, I believe, the most 
is the idea of magical thinking. Magical thinking is something that all humans have a capacity for. Uh, you can see this most clearly in the persistence of superstition. You know, don't step on a crack or you'll break your mother's back. Don't spill salt. Don't walk under a ladder. No black cats should walk in front of you. Those types of things. And even though in our, our modern heads, we know that when we knock over some salt, nothing's going to happen. There is something very primal in our heart that gives us a little bit of an uh-oh. Uh, and that's because of this capacity for magical thinking. We just, we just are, are willing to tap into, to, to some unknown pool of, of stuff that we can't explain. We'll call it magic that can cause events that seem miraculous. Uh, and I don't want to uh, offend anyone who, who's religious, um, but sort of religion would fall under under this category as well, which is we're not using the laws of physics to to explain real world events. We're using something that that is a different type of phenomenon. Well, how this relates to courage is the idea that many people have a lucky charm. And I know when I present this idea to people, especially when I go into a corporate or organizational environment, people just sort of laugh at me and they say, yeah, well, I don't have a lucky charm. But it turns out that just about everyone has a lucky charm of some sort. Uh, for men, it's often a piece of attire, uh, such as a power tie or a special pair of cufflinks given to them on a, a particular occasion, maybe a pair of socks. Um, for women who I interviewed, they often said it was a piece of jewelry or a pair of underwear. And even though no one thinks that, that these items truly are magically infusing anyone with courage, they do seem to make people feel more confident, sort of on game day, as it were. People choose these special items because it puts a little bit more spring in their step. And that somehow translates to... I've got this. I'm willing to take a risk. And it often can translate even to, to better performance. That's awesome. So yeah, find a lucky charm that might might work out for you. Absolutely. And I, I would say you might already have a lucky charm. Um, that is, if you have a, a piece of attire that gives you particular confidence, if you have a photograph of a loved one, a piece of jewelry. And the thing about these is that, that we create them, right? If someone gives you a gift from, from a trip abroad, suddenly that gift has special significance. You've already imbued it with a special quality. If you found that same thing on the ground, it wouldn't be nearly as special. But because someone who's connected to you gave it to you as a gift, because it represents something larger, perhaps their trip abroad, you're already making that item special. And because you have the this ability to, to create magical items, you can kind of go out and do that with something that, that will be a little bit of a lucky charm, maybe something you could keep in your pocket during those, those uh, really, really terrifying public presentations. In your research, did you find that, is courage domain exclusive? Like, say, if you're you increase your courage in one aspect of your life, like you overcome your fear of public speaking. Does that carry over to other domains, say to your family life or to some other part? The truth is we don't know exactly. Uh, it's in theory, that's the case, but we don't have the numbers for it. I will tell you this, this is, I think, somewhat related and it has to do with the way that people view courage. 
And that is people are more likely to view a successful act as a courageous act. So if you think about someone who who sees a car fall into a pond and, and they're worried that the occupants are drowning, if a person jumps into the pond and saves the occupants of the car, everyone around says, wow, that was so courageous. But if the person jumps into the pond and they themselves drown and don't save any of the occupants, the witnesses are far less likely to say that was courageous. So we have this idea that courage is somehow tagged to success. A courageous action is one that works in the end. But I don't think that's always true. And I think we sometimes overlook acts of courage that just happened to go awry. So one of the one of your sections in the you know how to increase your willingness to act that I thought was really interesting was this idea of self-handicapping. And it's something that people do without even thinking about it. And when we self-handicap, it reduces our willingness to act. So what is self-handicapping for people who are familiar with the, the concept? Self-handicapping is the idea that we don't like to be evaluated. So a classic example is you, you, you get a smart college student and they've got a huge final exam coming up. Now, they're, they're smart, they're bright, they've attended class, they in all likelihood can pass that final exam. And yet they don't wanna have to go through the burden of being evaluated and they're afraid that they might fail. So what they would do if they were to self-handicap is they would create some type of circumstance that might actually lead to their failure. So let's say they stay up all night the night before studying, and then they go in dead tired to the exam first thing in the morning. They end up doing terribly on it. The upside for them, psychologically speaking, is that they now get to say, Oh, well, it wasn't because I'm not smart. You know, I failed because I stayed up all night because of something more circumstantial, something more external to me. If I would have gotten good sleep, I would have aced the test. But because of this, this really terrible sleep, I ended up doing poorly. And many of us do this in a variety of ways. And, and we tend to even kind of do it a bit subconsciously. It sounds like passive aggression, but directed at the self. <laughs> That's a decent way to look at it. Right. So, uh, so how do you, how do you reduce that, you know, tendency to self handicap or how do you, you know, you said we do without even thinking about it or not even con like, how do you check yourself to make sure you're not doing that? Well, it's, it's difficult because it can come so naturally to us. One of the things I think is interesting though about self handicapping is that people are still willing to do whatever the action is. So think about the, the example I just gave you. That person is, in essence, afraid of the final exam, but you'll notice in this case, they were acting, if, if we can make the case, bravely. That is, they still took the final exam. Um, that, that is, they didn't stay home and, and just you know shrink in the corner terrified of the final exam. They were still willing to do it. Um, but what we want is for them to to do it in a way that doesn't involve them sort of cutting their own legs off. I think it has to do with a, a minor but powerful shift in mindset, um, wherein you are not being evaluated on success or failure, 
but rather on your own sense of growth. And even if you underperform the student, in this case, getting a C rather than an A, they use that as, as important feedback to identify areas that they're weaker in or that they're stronger in. It will help them redouble their efforts. And it's just part of an overall personal narrative of I'm getting better, I'm learning more, even if there's a few stumbling blocks along the way. So you have to be less focused on the individual momentary failure and have a grander sense of, in general, I'm still developing and growing all the time. So another thing that prevents us or keeps us from taking action is social cues, right? We might not be afraid, the fear might not be there, but when we look around at other people and we see them not taking action, it tends to cause us not to take action. This is called the bystander effect. So what can we do to overcome those biases that we of we have towards inaction when no one else is taking action? Yeah, absolutely. So to, to remind listeners what the bystander effect is, it's the idea that if five people witness someone fall down and, and have a seizure, for example, that in, in some cases, they're less likely to render aid to that person. And, and this goes a little bit uh, against how we would think because you'd be like, wow, there's five people. There should be five times the amount of help given. One of the problems is that each individual sees the others as being equally responsible. And so no one's willing to step forward because they assume that others will step forward. And so you can you can sidestep this by nominating yourself. And you can even do this ahead of time. Just right now in your head, say, when I see someone in trouble, a car on the side of the road that's disabled, someone that's fallen down, fainted, had a seizure, uh, someone that's obviously injured, anything like that, I'm the person. I am the person that is going to rush to their aid. And so you you sidestep that bystander effect. In part, one of the things that will help empower you to do that is sort of knowing what to do. If you're an EMT or a first responder and you have loads of medical training, you're far more likely to rush to, to the aid of someone having a seizure because it's not weird to you. It's not uh, frightening to you. You know exactly what's happening, exactly what to do. So if you um, can in some ways review in your head the types of skills you have, you can better nominate yourself to act in the types of scenarios that can use those skills. So it sounds like you're using implementation intentions. Like if I see someone in need of help, then I will help, right? I mean, that's what you're kind of doing. Absolutely. If I see a car go off the road on the freeway, I am absolutely going to stop my car even if I have an appointment, even if I have a long drive ahead of me and render aid however I can. That is me. Robert, there's a lot of tips that we haven't covered in this conversation, but if you were to, you know, go back and, you know, the people who are listening to this show and if there's one thing that they can do today to start increasing their courage quotient, what would that one thing be, you think? I'm actually going to cheat a little bit on this one and bring sort of the finish line of the race a little closer to people rather than try and get people to run faster to the finish line. And that is, uh, there's a a concept I describe in the book called courage blindness, which is you're just often unaware of how much courage you yourself have under your belt. 
And I think that once you start appreciating all the courageous things you you've done, you know, maybe chosen to get married or chosen to get divorced, chosen to have a kid, moved jobs, moved to another state, gone away to college, switched your majors, dropped out of college. All of those things are, are frightening to say the least. They're all uncertain. They all require you overcoming a sense of apprehension and taking a risk. And, and the list goes on and on, opening businesses, all sorts of things. And I would say that once you start considering that those are brands of courage, that, that resilience is a type of courage, perseverance is a type of courage, physical bravery is a type of courage, uh, risk-taking, like being an entrepreneur, is a type of courage. When you start thinking of, of all of these, every time you've stuck up for an underdog or every time you've been party to a, a politically incorrect conversation and said, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to bow out, I'm not comfortable with this. Every single one of those instances is a brand of courage. And I would, I would have people review that in their head so that they can see that they're not a, a zero out of 100 on courage, but that they have a huge history of personal courage and that that's what they should be building on going forward. So Robert, this has been a, a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your book and your work? Well, certainly they can get a copy of the, the Courage Quotient or, or any of my books at online retailers. And they can find out more about me by going to intentionalhappiness.com. Fantastic. Well, Robert, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. My guest today is Robert Biswas Diener. He's the author of the book, The Courage Quotient. It's available on amazon.com. You can also find out more information about his work at robertdiener.com. That's D-I-E-N-E-R.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash courage quotient, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Also check out our podcast archives. We've got over 300 episodes there at artofmanliness.com slash podcast. And if you enjoy the podcast, I've gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member, someone you think would get a lot out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.